iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How is everybody feeling on this fine summer evening? A couple of people said great, said very good, wonderful, so overall positive vibe. I dig it. We're going to kick this off. We'd like to start the evening by inviting you to enjoy the trailer for I Am Love. La fortuna della nostra famiglia è costruita sulla fabbrica. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tilda Swinton, Luca Guadagnino, and this evening's guest moderator, Mark Stafford from the New York School of Visual Arts. Good evening, and uh, thank you very much for your patience. Um, it's a great privilege for me to uh, be sitting with two uh, artists who I admire enormously, Tilda Swinton and Luca Guadagnino. And uh, just to have the chance to talk a little bit about this uh, very beautiful film that they've made together. Um, I know that uh, one of the most uh, interesting parts of the evening is going to be for you as the audience to, uh, to ask them questions. So I'm going to keep my, uh, my remarks as, uh, as brief as possible. Um, what I would like to say is that uh, it's uh, personally uh, an enormous relief to go to the cinema and see a film that is genuinely made for adults. Uh, and I also compliment uh, Magnolia Pictures for recognizing that in fact there is uh, a real audience for serious films, uh, for films that take great emotional risks, uh, for films that uh, really respond to the audience's desire to, uh, to see 
the beauty as well as the tragedy in everyday uh, life. And uh, I think that uh, this is a, a remarkable achievement. Um, I'm actually uh, very, uh, very tentative about uh, grilling uh, Tilda and Luca because they've both been, uh, as probably many of you can imagine, on, a, uh, on an extraordinary uh, series of, of interviews and have been asked the same questions over and over again. Uh, so uh, I, I hope that they will, will forgive me if I, uh, if I ask redundant questions. And I hope that you'll forgive me as well if, uh, if my questions seem a little bit uh, personal and not uh, the normal kind of uh, interview with a director, interview with a star kind of, of question. Um, you, can, you can yourselves ask uh, these questions. Um, the thing that I thought would be nice to do would just to be having uh, 30 minutes of intelligent conversation. Uh, maybe it's uh, not even going to be about the film. Um, but one way of, uh, of beginning, I thought, was just to talk about not the art of filmmaking, but the art of collaboration. Uh, because uh, I know that this uh, film represents a very extraordinary collaboration between Luca and Tilda. Uh, I, uh, I didn't do very much homework. Uh, I'm in general against the idea of homework uh, uh, b because it produces a complete lack of spontaneity. Um, but what I, did, what, what I did think was important to do was uh, to look up some of the other films that, uh, that Luca had made because, uh, uh, in fact, he's a, very, uh, he's a very accomplished filmmaker and uh, uh, he made a very interesting film, uh, I believe prior to this one, called Melissa P., uh, which uh, had a, a very extraordinary response to this film. Uh, he also made a very, uh, a very beautiful and interesting film about a famous uh, chef in, um, in Italy. Uh, is it Paolo Manieri? Mazzieri. Um, and uh, uh, I, uh, I definitely notice uh, a thread in his uh, artistic uh, interest, in his life interest, in the place of food. And if you go to see this film, which I, I'm sure you will, you'll see that, there's an extra, uh, that food and eating play a remarkable role uh, as, a, as, a, as objects of desire in this film. So I just want to say these few things about Luca because it was also my chance to remind myself of, uh, of the fact that he and Tilda have uh, been collaborating for some time. Uh, they, uh, they made a film together which has uh, a title which I'm uh, hugely envious of. Uh, the title of the film was The Protagonist, which uh, I think is a, a title that really is the, is the title of a film that one wants to see. It's what, who is a protagonist? Um, and uh, I also uh, know that uh, there was one other, one other collaboration that you, uh, uh, that you made together, uh, which was? Which was a film called The Love Factory. The Love Factory, yes. Yes. So uh, to begin with, I would just uh, hope that they could say just a little bit about how they met and, uh, and what their collaboration uh, means to each other and uh, what sort of... Uh, ideas they have about working together in the future. Luca, do you want to start? Okay, Till. <laughs> Luca. I, I it's I very think difficult it's good... for me to um, put in words something that is really 
made of the fabric of life and, uh, and the joy of living. It's not something that I can an analyze because, you know, it's like trying to analyze how you pee. Uh, it's natural, it's something effortless and it's something uh, r beautiful and relieving in a way to, to, to be, to be together. I really, really, I don't know what to say, more than that, that it's so funny and uh, exciting and thrilling to do things together and to do more and more. And plotting, you know, you plot things. It's like about plotting. It's like about uh, uh, inventing uh, the perfect crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we're playmates. We're just playmates. We met over 20 years ago. And it, there was an interesting serendipity for me about the way we met because I worked, as some people know, in cinema originally with one playmate, Derek Jarman, who I worked alongside for nine years uh, and we made seven films together. And he had just left the building in 1994, he died and Quite soon after he died, I was in Rome at a symposium that the British Council had put together. And I met Luca there. And, and I found another uh, playmate who has this very particular uh, relevance for me as a, as a as an artist, not just you know one of my great friends of my life, but as a playmate, one of the things that for me is very very precious is that we we share roughly a generation, we share references that um, that are very kind of you know the, they're so mixed and so profound I mean the very fact that we will both go to the opening uh, performance in Rome at noon of Transformers and declare it a masterpiece you know there aren't many people that you can talk to about Bresson and Transformers and and we have this dialogue and it's a very very rare and precious kind of of kindergarten that we inhabit um. For me, uh, what I found uh, very extraordinary in this film was uh, the, uh, the sense of emotional investigation, uh, the possibility of, uh, of pushing uh, the audience's limitation with regard to what they could uh, sympathize with, uh, appreciate, uh, question in, uh, the life of, in the life of a woman. The film, I don't think, is just about uh, a woman, but it's certainly uh, a very unusual, a very unusual history of a woman. Um, and I think uh, that, uh, f for me, what is quite evident is that the collaboration between the two of you uh, made possible such an investigation. That without this sense of a kind of mutual, uh, a shared vision to go beyond what either one of you might have expected to do in this movie uh, was, uh, was what makes it uh, uh, so, so particular, so unique. Um, their collaboration uh, is uh, uh, undoubtedly uh, one that's very beautiful, 
um, that I would like uh, to talk a little bit and ask them to talk a little bit about how actually this story evolved. Because for me, uh, I had the sense, knowing that the film had taken almost 10 years to, to make, is it correct? That it, how, More or less. Yeah, that it certainly was, certainly was a long evolution to some, in comparison to some films. I, uh, I was thinking as I watched it last night, uh, uh, when I was reading the credits, the number of people who had actually participated in writing the film. Uh, could you speak just a little bit about how uh, your ideas about who this woman, uh, Emma, uh, is in the film and what, uh, what evolution there was about the story that you wanted to tell about her? Well, we started, we, and this is my experience of having long-term working relationships, you have this conversation, which is the main event, and then every so often you'll make a piece of work, which is like a symptom of the main event. It's not that important. The, a film you might make is so much less important than the conversation that you're having that leads to the film. And we made this film 11 years ago called The Protagonists, and this is often my experience that while you're cutting that piece of work, you start to discuss the next piece of work, which invariably is, is plan, planned as 180 degrees away from the thing that you're just finishing. So we started about 11 years ago to, to, to talk about a very emotional cinema. I remember a conversation round about um, the protagonists, which is an experimental film about about the making of a film. It's about a, a team making an investigative film. And soon after we'd shot this film, we started talking about an opposite film or an atmosphere that might be entirely opposite, something very involving, not analytical at all, but emotional. And we started talking about a kind of emotionalism in cinema and how we longed for it and how we long for it and we look for it in the works of great classic cinema and also great classic novels um, and how we would like to visualize a modernist evolutionary turn of that emotionalism and um, about seven years ago when we made The Love Factory, we decided to place as the kernel in a narrative for this, this kind of film, um, the idea of the revolution of love. And the second fact was that this revolution of love would occur in the life of a woman who I would play. And those were literally the first two seeds and we just sort of played with them. They were the grit in the oyster, if you like. And really, everything spiraled from there. You know, it's like a sort of detective work. We knew we wanted to look at this woman. We knew we wanted the love in her life to be revolutionary. That meant that the milieu in which she found herself had in some way to be combustible, had to be breakable. So then we started to think about this particular milieu which we found in Milan. I think yeah. this is the beginning. Yeah, and also the milieu comes from uh, uh, my, my, my crazy willing of making a movie out of the Budenbrock by Thomas Mann. 
this great uh, family saga book that I read when I was a young uh, kid. And I think, yes, it's this combination. You know, the films evolve in time because uh, uh, whatever you do, you have to go back to what you experience culturally and as a person in the life, I guess. And this, yeah, the, the real, I mean, to make a scheme, I would say the love factory meets the Buddenbrock in a way, no? I think that's a very kind of precise way of saying. And uh, we read a lot of... Um, I think it's interesting to do uh, essay movies that becomes es that are essays out of a reflection, but then they are disguised into the narrative. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, I'm sorry to uh, for those of you who actually haven't yet seen the, uh, the, the complete film to be speaking about uh, details uh, of the narrative. Um, we're going to have a chance to look at, uh, at some of the clips but uh, I'm very struck by the use of this word revolution um, because uh, when I was reading uh, before the trailer the description of the film it definitely emphasizes the, uh, the, the quality of, of the Thomas Mann the Budenbrooks novel that uh, Luca is referring to which is uh, a great story of a, of a family and, uh, and the film is... Uh, is a portrait of a family. Um, but uh, the word revolution, I think, is uh, very interesting insofar as, for some viewers anyway, I think they will find in it a very interesting reflection on political revolution. Uh, insofar as what, uh, uh, what the reason for me asking about uh, um, why this particular woman is because... Uh, this uh, woman, Emma, <clears throat> has, uh, has, lost her, has lost her past. For me, uh, she's a woman who uh, has buried uh, what is most uh, precious to her and uh, has buried it uh, for, uh, for reasons of love. She has buried it in order to, uh, to make a family uh, and to make a, a life uh, for herself. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I think that the, there's a very uh, subtle, whether it was intentional or not, um, there's something very subtly uh, historical about this film insofar as uh, uh, this uh, Emma evokes, um, the, evokes the history of Russia, evokes the history of Russia in the 20th century and uh, evokes actually um, the, a country where a certain human dignity uh, was lost, and where in the aftermath of, uh, of a great political change, uh, people felt that there was no longer any place for them in their country, that they could be collected, that they could be transported. Um, and uh, for me, the, the, the tragedy of the film is that uh, this woman's past uh, is not one that could be completely erased and that uh, her, her country, her language, her past comes back through a completely chance encounter with, uh, with a man. And that this man has the, uh, has the sensitivity to recognize that there is something hidden in this woman. And I feel that this was a, a, a very unique uh, film. Of course, I'm emphasizing 
from the beginning that this is a collaboration between uh, uh, Luca and Tilda. But I think it's very rare to find uh, a film where there is this sensitivity to the life of a woman. And uh, I, th I have great admiration for the way in which uh, uh, the experience, the intimacy uh, of a woman is, uh, is portrayed in the film. And that, I think, is something very different from, from the element of the, the family saga. Um, I would add to that, and why I think that the film actually uh, should be considered as a, uh, as a political meditation, political in the broadest sense, not in the ideological sense, but in the broadest sense, because uh, uh, I find it very remarkable the way in which uh, um, the storytellers, Luca and his collaborators and Tilda, managed to make a meeting between the history of Russia, uh, as embodied in Emma's uh, buried past, and also uh, the politics of Italy in the 20th century, and the extent to which this family that uh, you will you will follow in the film the Reckies have their own have their own buried history uh, a history which has been one which they have un in com completely opposite to Emma who has lost everything the Reckies have in fact gained what uh, we would assume to be all of the uh, uh, all of the wealth all of the trappings of um, uh, of bourgeois life but they have gained this through burying uh, something of their own past. Uh, and I was wondering if maybe, Luca, you could talk a little bit about, just for you, what was at stake in this, uh, in this part of the, in this dimension of the film. Something other than this uh, quality of just the love encounter between a man and a woman. Oh my God. <laughs> well, uh, no, I think that uh, um, what is interesting to me is always what is uh, behind or, or uh, the remains or the removed. Uh, I think that uh, if you approach the family, you have to see what is behind the family. If you approach the class we are approaching, you have to see why, the why is behind the, 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 that class. And in particular in Italy, I think that uh, it's pretty, pretty fair to say that uh, uh, the Italian subcon subconscious is kind of fascist in a way. And I think that uh, Emma is kind of the return of the removed in the family, you know? And she's like the calm waters who breaks the bridges, as in Italy they say. And, uh, and she's not supposed to be that. And uh, so to combine these elements and to see how you make the domino go, uh, the, go down uh, is uh, what interests What's it? I feel interesting, you know, like to see, uh, to see that. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I was thinking uh, as you were m making this remark about uh, what is hidden, uh, that uh, the film is uh, an exploration of what it is that a, a woman responds to, what it is that a woman desires in her life. I, 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 I yeah, the, I think it's. How often you see films or you read books or essays that are really non-paternalistic uh, toward women, you know? I think it's about that, and it's so fascinating. W woman is a mystery, and cinema is a mystery, so... Mystery, mystery, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Although, to women, of course, women are not mysterious. Um, of course. And what... 
Um, but, but even what, what women struggle to know is that transformation and change and evolution is not even um, a question of choice or just an option. It's just a fact of life. And I think what we look at with Emma is it's not a very exotic portrait in a way of it, it's not, this is not related to the milieu, although it's heightened by the milieu in which she finds herself. She's a woman who had children at a certain age, pretty young, um, meaning that she was relatively unformed when she had them. As a woman, she became a mother fairly fast into her womanhood. And these children, she's devoted her life to, um, and they are now grown and they are now leaving. And she looks at herself and, hey presto, the wheel has turned. And I think that this is very often a, a predicament that women of, of this particular stage um, you know, are, are confronted with. The idea that they have had to be the solid rock, they ha that while their families have morphed and grown and developed, they are the ones um, who have had to deny the idea of change in themselves and have wrapped their pride and dignity around their ability to be solid and unchanging. And then this chasm opens up for them and into this sort of void breaks this other consciousness, the consciousness of themselves before they were mothers, which they thought, had, they thought they'd changed, but it's more than they've changed. There is another being that has come into being, which is them as mother, but actually the them alone, pre-mother, was always there, and it's just been waiting for her moment. Yes, I think that uh, this, this is a very rare thing to, to find presented in any work of art, whether it's cinema or literature. Um, I think uh, I was struck when I saw the film again last night about uh, the subtlety with which uh, Emma's son and daughter struggle to understand who she is. Uh, it, it's uh, an extraordinary portrait of, uh, among other things, a son's confusion about the degree to which he feels he possesses his mother. And uh, what is uh, one of the revolutions in the film is definitely the revolution that is instigated by Emma's daughter, who in fact is, uh, if you like, the catalyst for a form of love that would transcend all circumstances. There would be a love that is willing to lose everything in order to, uh, to believe in itself. And I found that uh, psychologically uh, very moving and very subtle and uh, not in any way to uh, uh, preempt your own viewing of the film. You will see that uh, with, I think, uh, really um, you know, classical purity, the way in which the narrative unfolds and is concluded through the mark of the recognition of uh, Emma's daughter's recognition of her mother's position is very, uh, is very unusual and very rare. One of the things that we really wanted to show was 
um, the possibility, or in, in my view, the inevitability of um, a mother being led into liberation by her children. That, that, that the, her children, both her son who introduces her to her love and her daughter who introduces her to uh, the concept of a kind of abandon, um, they really, they, they, they do the work for her. And I think that's something that's relatively rare, rarely looked at. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a kind of a taboo that the film touches on. On the one hand, it appears that the taboo that the film uh, touches on is the taboo of this woman leaving her family, uh, being prepared, in fact, to, uh, to break, literally, her family. But the other taboo that's introduced, certainly to the viewer of the movie, is the taboo of thinking about uh, what a child sees in, in their mother, what, what they think, who they think their, their mother is. Um, you both uh, remarked on this question of, uh, of, uh, of a cinema of emotion. And uh, I, uh, I'm curious if you can comment a little bit uh, on, uh, on two elements which, for me, constitute this cinema of emotion. One certainly would have to be the contribution that the music of John Adams makes to this movie. Because, uh, you know, the... Uh, it would, be, uh, it would be derogatory to suggest that this film has a soundtrack uh, because it is in fact a film which grows out of sound and music and extraordinary music by an extraordinary American composer who we should be very, very proud of because he's really uh, uh, a genius. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit about uh, what part... Uh, your own encounter with the music of John Adams had in your thinking, in your visualization of the film, and also maybe just to uh, say a little bit about uh, his, the support that he gave also the project. Well, I am not very fond in, uh, on the idea of working with a composer for soundtrack. I think that uh, there is so much uh, out there already done that there can be uh, listen to and can inspire you and uh, that it's much more uh, strong and that uh, uh, to whom the composer dedicated much more time because when you do a soundtrack you spend t two, three, four weeks and that's it but if you think of uh, a piece by Sibelius maybe it took him three years to write uh, a ten minutes piece uh, so I, I and I, the only time I got, I, I worked uh, the only two times I worked with composers it was disastrous, um, and I don't know I do, I really don't think that's my kind of I don't like to do that mm. so I started I, you know I listen to music we listen to music and you get inspired I remember I found in your house uh, at Debussy le le premier du phone and I was listening to that. And, uh, and one day, uh, a friend gave me a present. It was naive and sentimental music by John Adams. It was like f five years ago, six years ago. And uh, I didn't know anything about John Adams, neither I didn't, and I knew his uh, CD. So I put it as, out of curiosity. And the sound, uh, this is really peculiar Adams. 
I immediately felt as if I was already, I already knew this, you know, like it was an, uh, ancestral. There is something very womb-like in his music. And it was the sound that I was trying to listen in my mind uh, for I Am Love. Uh, so we immediately bought all the CDs we could, uh, shared, become addicted, conceived uh, uh, for, our, for each and every of our duties, uh, the movie with the music of, uh, of John Adams. We were really like m shooting with the music, with uh, uh, Tilda and the other performance acting out of the music of John Adams and the key grip moving the camera on the rhythm of the music of John Adams and so on. In the second part. Which is a really dangerous thing to do because we knew that John Adams famously has never uh, uh, allowed his, his work to be used in any film. And uh, this is maybe a film about rich people, but it was made with papers and string. And um, the idea of paying for the rights of John Adams' music, even if we could persuade him to let us, uh, was kind of out of the question. So we really were becoming, you know, the, the work that his music was really in the in the DNA of the film. And I think one of the reasons to try and analyze why that might have been, I think it has something to do with the fact that we knew that we were playing with, the, with a fantasy of melodrama. And that was a kind of trope that we were working with. And when you work with melodrama, in, in, in my opinion, I, you, have to, you have to play your jokers very carefully, your emotional jokers, in the, in the behavior, in the drama. You have to kind of keep things up your sleeve. And given that we were looking at this very, uh, this milieu which is built on the concept of denial, you know, these, all these people, they're just, you know, doing everything they can not to be emotional. Um, we knew that we, we needed the emotion to be held somewhere else because were it not in the behavior, were it not on the screen, if you like, um, it might have been very dry. It might have been just too much reserve. And what John Adams has is this magical combination of this classical backbone and this vernacular wit, which felt to us so, um, so exactly expressive of what we wanted to do in terms of the film. We wanted it to be truly modernist, and, but have this kind of, you know, Old, old wine into new bottles or vice versa feeling and his work is so much that I guess there is a clip with some music of John Adams can we see that? that would be great Edon amore Sono fuori città. Ho deciso di andare a Nizza, da Betta. No, no, non dirle niente. Ti chiamo dopo.
Che ci fa qua? Sto andando a trovare Peter. Ah già, la mostra Nizza, me l'aveva sì, detto, sì. vedo. Lei invece? Ma oggi il ristorante è chiuso. Ah sì, il giovedì, la campagna, le verdure. Eh, se non è troppo impegnata, perché non mi accompagna su? È solo una piccola deviazione. Le faccio vedere dove facciamo il ristorante con Edo. Lui è già venuto su qualche volta, eh? Um, just uh, seeing that clip reminds me just of uh, one thought that I had about the music, which is that in a sense uh, he really introduced the music as a, prota as a protagonist, that there's something uh, that is outside of, that the music works in a very extraordinary way to produce something that actually is not seen. Uh, I think that cinema today, since the last 30 years more or less, more, less and more and more degrading itself, is using very, small, very few tools on, at its disposition. Like, usually now it's about uh, dialogues and uh, faces. So I would say actors and dialogues, mm. more or less, and sometimes mm -hmm. sound mm -hmm. in the broader term. I think that when you use your tools, you have to be very conscious of the fact that uh, all of the tools of the cinema, which are many, 
are all protagonists of your film and can, they, they can be character in your movie. And you can say this about, uh, in, the, in I Am Lover, you can, tell, you can address that the music is a character, the architecture, the environment is a character. And uh, all, all, the act, all the performances are characters in the movie, rounded, not serving uh, the main roles, you know, like, like you usually see, which is a very typical uh, uh, cinematic version of the theater in the 19th century, you know, with the little role uh, uh, being there to support the, 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 the bigger. So yes, the, I like the fact that you pointed this out, because it's important that the music is like dancing with, the, with, the, with, the, with Emma or with Tancredi in the film. I, actually, there is not much music around Tancredi. <laughs> anyway, people that want. And, uh, okay. Uh, the, the, uh, the, this, uh, you introduced though, something that is certainly uh, very fascinating and has a, a very important uh, part to play, especially in the opening third of the film, although it returns, which is also this unique, ha this very particular house where so much of the Recchi families, the, the, the unfolding of the dynamics between the family uh, plays itself out. Could you just say a few words about how you managed to have access to this extraordinary building and, and the history of this building? I think it's momentum. I think we were very lucky and everything felt to place the way it should. Because I, I found the house uh, like two years in advance of shooting the movie and we wanted to do a movie, we wanted to do a movie. But the house had to be closed for two years because they were re, um, re, renovating it. And uh, it's been a, um, a private house for 70 years almost. And then in 2001, when the last person who was inhabiting it uh, died, they left it uh, to the National uh, Trust for Environment, uh, which is a private, it's a public, sorry, company in Italy that uh, um, basically as the heritage of many, many great, important historical and buildings and national parks. Um, it's, this house is very, uh, it's kind of geni genial, you know, there is a sort of involuntary ge gen geniality in it, uh, because it's summarized in a very chilling way, but also very hypnotic way, the class that has been built for. This house has been built in the late 30s, at the, at the verge of the war, and it's like a, a, a cube of marble with the same kind of color of the buildings in the center of Milano, disguising themselves into this very sharp, clean, sober, grim color and, and, and lines. And inside, it's a, an explosion of alarming power of the details, I would say. You know, there is so many details in this house that are showing off without showing off all the time. And it's grand, but looks sort of strange. It's, it's very fascinating. And it was done for a, a maker of uh, sewing machi machines. They, they, pre they, who, they pretended to be kind of royals. It's interesting, you know? Bourgeois that they want to be royals. Nice. Yes, yes, but uh, what so I viva the aristocrats. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's an instance where, as you were speaking about uh, using all of your tools, where the space plays such a crucial role in evoking for the audience what is otherwise unspoken with regards to the 
the dialogue between the family members. So much of the film, it seems to me, is actually told through the representation or the presentation of certain objects, which leaves... Uh, what I like about this is that, just as you're saying about the music, it means that the dialogue is not... Uh, and the, and the, the work of the performance is not illustrative of anything. In fact, it is, it is something, and there's space given for the audience to, in fact, construct themselves what it is that it, uh, that it stands for. Um, for me, that was, uh, the, the, the building is very, uh, uh, is very unique also because of the way that it contrasts with the mountains and the hills of, uh, of San Remo. And the contrast between this world of, uh, of seclusion, this world of, 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 the na of the natural, that's something that's close to the earth, and what part that plays in the unfolding of the tragedy um, is, uh, is extremely interesting. Um. When we were uh, developing the idea, um, and in the first um, few drafts of the script, I remember at one point we were talking about the ideal house, which we didn't know yet, and we talked about it being part palace, part museum, part prison. And this house that we found really is exactly that. And the interesting thing about that architecture is that it, it, it has this sort of mesmeric quality. The, it, it sort of directs how you live in it. There's something about that kind of domestic rise of the stair and... As Lucas says, these extraordinarily bombastic details, like the leather-lined dining room. And there's one detail that isn't in the film, but I'll tell you, it's really phenomenal. It was going to be in even a fairly late cut, but outside the front door, there is a portcullis, a, a sort of two-sided portcullis, like teeth, which literally, you know, you press a button, it goes... <laughs> quite phenomenal this brutalist masterpiece really and there's something you know to live in a house like that ah wow i mean it would it it does have something inherently theatrical about it but at the same time it reminded me constantly of cinematic references it made me think of fassbinder every day there was something about its time that sort of came forward into the present, you know, that it's almost impossible to live in a truly modern way in that house. Yes, uh, the, the, I think that uh, the, the contrast or your interest in the details and the degree to which the camera really presents the details and uses the details uh, psychologically uh, works in a very, uh, a very effective way to actually creates the tragedy because it presents a world where the inhabitants of that world are thinking that everything in their world could be controlled and that uh, if there's something which in a sense is uh, more of the order of tragedy than melodrama in the film it's the unfolding in with a, a very precise machinery of the film itself of details which ultimately implode, which ultimately reveal that it's impossible to control, to control life in the way that this family believes uh, they, uh, they could. Um, would you like to ask a few questions with uh, an emphasis on the few? We do have a microphone, so if you just raise your hand, we'll come right on over. 
Hi. Um, I don't like using these terms, but the film language and the mise-en-scene, um, you know, the camera work and those kinds of things seem really unusual, but very intuitive. And um, I was just wondering, I mean, it's your directing style, but was there anything that you can tell us about how you decided to design the shots and the camera movement? Because it seems unusual. I, 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 I like the fact what you said, intuitive. I think it's very, very real. Uh, uh, it's very, it's very, I, I don't believe in style and uh, you can tell when somebody has, thinks he has a style. And um, I, don't, I really don't know how to explain how, it's very difficult, I don't know how, if, it's very difficult, you know, you have to be always where uh, the, the movie drives you to be, basically, I think. And you have to trust your collaborators. We have another question right here in the middle. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, because um, I've seen a lot of your movies, and I was wondering, was this a difficult role for you to get into, or was it something that you kind of like got into very easily, playing Emma, that is? Um, it's super easy, I have to say. Um, I, I'm, I have to confess, I don't find I, I never really get into anything, to be honest with you. Um, so, um, so I have to con confess, I'm, I don't don't even do it, let alone find it hard. Um, but working on something for 11 years really helps because it's like you spoon feed yourself and you just slowly, slowly act as if, you know, and and suddenly you've shot it and you're talking to people in an Apple store about it. Um, no, it was a very organic uh, process. I think that. Emma, the character of Emma, the was is something. It's not character is not a term that I like to use because I'm not really that interested in characters. I'm much more interested in um, people and the predicaments in which they find themselves and and their behaviour. Um, but I I think that the the sort of fantasy of Emma sort of was in our peripheral vision, f inspired by novels that we loved and 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 cinema that we loved she we never really needed to discuss her really she felt very um again intuitive for us and um even working out what she did or how she did it or um why she did anything we never really needed to to think about as i say it was it was just here we just we would we would, as we were developing the story and as we were developing even the shooting we would just you know, pick possibilities up and shake them and go, is that right? No, and then just keep shaking until you find, oh, that's it, that's right. This is a very um, amorphous sort of process. We have another question over here to your right, and we have time for two more questions. Yes. Hello. I'd just like to thank Apple for this splendid opportunity to see one of the greatest actors on the planet and to have a great director to accommodate this is once a, a unique treat. I think this is beautiful. I think it needs to be commended. And I'd just like to say that I noticed you said that you don't normally commit yourself to something. I have a different with that because your reputation as being one of the nicest actresses on the planet precedes you and you need to be 
Someone needs to tell you that because you are really everywhere. I go to California. I've been to London. Everybody speaks highly of your generosity to your fans. And among that, your work is superb. And I'm speaking Oscar. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> okay, another one to your left. Actually, that's kind of right in front of you, isn't it? Not necessarily the left. Well, it's over here. Here we go. I had a question about the last clip. Um, two questions, actually. One, was Tilda's hairstyle an intentional reference to Vertigo? And then the other question is about the shot which we didn't see, the slow-mo push past her head to the window, which is, a, which is my favorite shot in the film. I wondered if uh, in, the, in the final cut, it cuts away and back. And I just had this personal need to know was that originally intended to be held as one continuous take until he appears at the window? Because it seemed like it might have worked that way, but maybe the, maybe the take was too long or... Uh, no. 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 No, no. It was important to see the gaze. It's the gaze of her. You, uh, that, the place in the, for the camera was her, her, her mind... And we had to see Emma gaze. And, no, no, I think it was, I feel it was always intended like a dialogue between uh, Emma and what she's watching and, uh, and hoping to appear. You know, she thought, that's, the, I think, the hope, the hope of it for yeah, Emma. Yeah, it's about a fantasy. It's a moment of fantasy for her. And it's, in a sense, a hallucination. We slowed um, motion, we put uh, extra slow motion in post production. This is really one of the very few shots that we digitalize like one of the very very few like one minute maximum of the movie and that the question was absolutely you spotted it no we um we uh were shamelessly referencing hitchcock there we allowed ourselves the full indulgence and and we wanted to be confessional about it um and i, I just said to luca when we were watching that clip of course it's complete to catch a thief as well being in san remo and the outside the casino um but that's a very good example, that's that scene you just saw, of us being so addicted to John Adams before we had the rights or his agreement that we could, we could use his, his uh, work in our film, of literally shooting a, a scene to that Lollapalooza piece of music. I mean, in between takes, the, the, the grip and I and the camera and Yorick Lusso were listening to the headphones and listening to that piece of music. And we have one final question right here. Um, tell me if I'm off base or anything, but you both seem to be people that do what you do because you really love it and you love art and you love the emotions and the beauty that's poured into it and that it can give out. So my question is, do you ever feel disparaged or sad or angry knowing that at the end of the day, more people are going to be exposed to something like Transformers 2 than something like I Am Love. As she said to me once, many years ago, things find their way. And I don't... I was very disappointed by Transformers 2 because Shia rocks, is fantastic. And the movie was so bad. Uh, you know, I think that... I think that the audience is much more clever and rock and roll than marketing department thinks. 
And thankfully, we have a great marketing department uh, of Magnolia here that uh, thinks the same. And in fact, this movie, which is an Italian movie in Italian, has been bought uh, after one day of showing it in Toronto because uh, Magnolia felt that uh, people want to see the movie, Knockwood. And um, I think the numbers uh, in cinema have, must be counted over uh, 50 years. The gross of a movie must be over 50 years, not over two, three weeks. And the influence of a movie. Last Tango in Paris. Maybe, maybe a third of you have seen the movie, but how much this movie had an incredible influence over generations of people and generations of artists and generations of filmmakers compared to, let's say, um, a Leeds Taylor comedy of the same period, you know? A blockbuster of that same period. Even though we hope the Transformers 3 is going to be better than the second. So on that highly philosophical note, we will conclude our conversation. Thank you very much for your very thoughtful and respectful questions. Uh, thank you, of course, to Luca and Tilda. And uh, thank you very much for our, to our host, Apple. Thank you again to Tilda Swinton, Luca Guadagnino, and Mark Shepard. And thank you very much, and have a wonderful evening.